Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Visa Wellington on a Plate. Gosh, where did this month go? As the phenomenon that is Visa Wellington on a Plate draws to a close at the end of October, this month-long celebration of all things food and drink in Wellington has once again dished up a fantastic array of deliciousness. Alongside an opportunity to have a think about our New Zealand food culture and understand a little bit more about exactly what that is. In this, the last of a series of three podcasts produced especially for Visa Welly on a Plate, we hear from a chef who has played an integral part in the New Zealand food story. You know, bottles of champagne flying left, right and centre, great food coming out of the kitchen and just this absolute buzz every night. Sitting on the edge of the bed with your head down going, ugh. <laughs> got back to Wellington and I said, watch this. <laughs> right? And the guy's like, holy shit, we've got to do that. I'm like, I know, right? I'm in a sarong and a tank top going, <laughs> I, not, not how I imagined I was going to meet Brooke Shields. But I wanted those conversations to take place because I was really proud of what we were doing and the lens that we were going to to do it. The number one factor in my life was, you know, was, was a complete and utter dedication to the craft and the career and the restaurant um, above all else. That chef and ex-restaurateur has sliced up his heart for you on a plate in this episode. This chat was originally supposed to be part of a podcast featuring a number of voices, but I felt that this conversation was just too special to be condensed into 20 minutes. It's a story of an uncompromising quest for taste, texture and flavour, unending curiosity, phenomenal talent and great resilience. So find yourself a comfy corner and settle in, or you may want to listen to this one in two parts. But do have a listen. It's an intimate glimpse inside the mind of the very talented Martin Bosley, who at the tender age of 21 was contemplating the name of his very first restaurant. Gévenet was born in 1987. I actually didn't know how to say it myself. I didn't even know what it meant. It's a place in France where Claude Monet lived and had his garden. So when the name came out of the hat, then I started to read all about Gévenet. And actually, um, it felt quite apt. You know, Monet, the Impressionist, what I wanted to do. Some of the influences, I thought, you know, actually kind of felt that it was meant to be. 12 courses for $95 BYO. What was the food? Well, it was probably my first explorations into things being a little bit experimental when I sort of had this quite formal classical French training, you know, where I've been taught that, you know, cherries go with duck and oranges go with duck. And, you know, it was quite, it was quite prescriptive, sort of all classical garnishes. Um, and these are the things that you did. And... Givenet was like, well, does it have to be? Does cherry, you know, can, can cherries go with something else or can duck go with something else? And because we only had six tables and it was a surprise menu every night, um, people didn't know what they were getting. They weren't given a menu. I mean, I could just change, swap things out from dish to dish. So frequently, like the sauce that I'd made to go with the fish could end up with the chicken by about the third or fourth table. It was, a, you know, it was like a better fit. Uh, and as the week, so I'd start out at the beginning of the week with a new menu and we'd modify it, tweak it every day. And by the time it got to Saturday, it was pretty much where I wanted it to be. And then, you know, come uh, Monday, Tuesday, we'd start all over again and start the, you know, and, and repeat the process. It wasn't too far in that you suddenly realised that actually um, you weren't making any money. No, probably about, probably about eight months, actually. And it was like, you know, you're 21, 22, you're, you know, I left school at 15. So book, bookkeeping wasn't really a, you know, it wasn't really a thing for me. So you just kind of go, oh, look, money's coming in, money's going out. And, um, Back then, of course, everything was done longhand. 
you know, with a pencil and a, you know, mm. a direct entry bookkeeping system. And, you know, and I was on a Sunday, I was knackered. Neither Julia nor I had time for that. We'd sleep on a Sunday because we were so buggered from the week. Yeah. Uh, so the accountant got the figures done and he said, look, you know, you guys are going backwards fast. And they actually worked out that the 95 wasn't enough. We'd been incredibly generous. And, uh, and while we had a lot of fun at um, doing it, you know, suddenly it got very, very real that, um, you know, it was my first experience that, yeah, you know, what necessarily comes in doesn't always cover what's going out. And so that restaurant opened in 1987, which I believe was the same yeah. day as the stock market crashed. Oh, yeah, we opened the day the market crashed. It was just, you know, there were people diving out of windows on Lambton Quay. Yeah. And, that, you know, and, and that was the market that we were appealing to and aiming to. It just, they had just gone literally overnight. It was... Uh, so part of the reason we did the, the, the digger station, the digger station wasn't really a thing back then. You know, we had to explain to people what it was. The reason we did the digger station was that we needed $95 off everybody that came in through the door mm. you know, to, 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 make, you know, to pay the rent and make it work. Because you only had so uh, many seats. We only sat 26 people. Yeah. You know, you know which when it's just a husband and wife team. And, you know, and it's not like, you know, I started out with Every Chef's Dream, which is the small, you know, the small intimate restaurant where it's just you in the kitchen and, you know, your partner or someone else on the floor. Maybe with a couple of helpers, do you know, you know, doing everything. That's what a lot of chefs aspire to at the end of their careers rather than the beginning of their careers. And um, so it was, a, it was a crash course, really, in um, you know, in the economics of actually running a restaurant. And it was all that other stuff, Kelly, that no one ever factors in. You know, you think, well, if I bought this chicken breast for two dollars, I can sell it for eight. That'll be fine. But you know, you forget about the fact you've got a kitchen hand you had to pay. Oh. And back then, the source cook, you know, was when they started to bring in compliance costs and which you hadn't really had before. So everybody was sort of dipping into. So whatever, whatever dollar that we got, um, you know, everybody else had their hand in there before we got, you know, before we got to um, to put our hand on it. Yeah, you know, we were one of the first restaurants to open under the new uh, liquor licensing legislation. Um, and we, so, we, you know, we painted the restaurant uh, when, we were re when we were renovating it. And then the fire inspectors came through and made us repaint it again because we hadn't used a fire retardant paint, oh, which was... You know, which is a new paint on the market and was hideously expensive and could only be applied by an authorised applicator. You know, it was, so it was just, we, we just got caught by a lot of things. A lot of people were like trying things out on us because we were young and naive, I guess, mm, mm. And, uh, and small enough to, to say, okay, what do we have to do next? And um, it was tough going. I mean, some nights we'd just, we'd do two people. Yeah, and that must be hard as well because as much as you say that's what a lot of chefs aspire to, the other side of that is if you're running that business with your partner or whatever and the two of you are in it together and you, you're constantly together, I mean, you have to have an incredible relationship to be able to, to oh, sustain that, huh? Oh, absolutely. You know, but, um, and Julia and I worked together at that restaurant and then later on at Brasserie Flip, and I think it was probably at Brasserie Flip that we worked out we weren't actually great working together. Mm. Um. Because it was, you know, it was really tough. And I think, you know, um, youthful enthusiasm gets you so far through. You know, we were newly married as well. So there was, you know, there was a lot of excitement going on about, you know, newly married and a restaurant and all this sort of stuff. And we were getting great publicity. So there was all that going on. But the hard grind was really tough. I look at a lot of um, husband and wife teams and, I, you know, and I think, you know, good on them for doing it. But shit, there's no respite. You know, there's no... no. You know, you know what work wife looks like and sounds like because you're around it. Then, you, you know, and there's... Often there's very little change between that and then when you get you know, and then when you get home and you just fall into bed at the end of the night absolutely exhausted. Yeah, yeah. But you then know? also in hospitality, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you look at um, a lot of these teams that work together, and as a chef, it's you know almost twenty four hours a day, and you're so in it and you're so dedicated, and you live, breathe, think 
you know, eat and drink it. It's it's consumes you, doesn't it? And well, you, yeah. your partner, unless they were actually in it with you, I, I think it would be very hard for a partner to understand that and to go along with it. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, and I was fortunate that Julia had been um, had been a, a, a nurse prior. So she, she was used to what shift work looked like, right? So, because I remember I, I, at one point I'd had a girlfriend pre. Um, Julia, who was, um, you know, she worked a nine to five job and she said, oh, look, you know, the reason that relationship ended was she said, I can't handle your hours. They're really strange. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? I said, so I think your hours of nine to five, that's really weird. I don't know how you can do that. I think your hours are strange. So, so Julia was used to shift work. So she, under, she understood that. And because she was working in it, she kind of understood where the passion came from. But it was years later, though, when, you know, she said to me, um, you know, it's a really selfish industry. Um, because you are so self-obsessed to it, and and she used to say to me, you know, like I I come number three on your list. You know, it's your it's food and restaurant first. You know, that's where it sits. That's that's your driver. That's why you get up in the mornings, and that's what you you know that's that's your prime motivator. And I would deny it. I go, no, no, don't be ridiculous. It's all about family, and you know what I do is what pays for all this stuff, etc. You know, being de- you know being really defensive. Mm. And it wasn't actually until, um, you know, many, many years later, Julia and I had actually separated and, and, and divorced, um, that I realised that she was absolutely right. You know, it had been a, the number one factor in my life was, you know, was was a complete and utter dedication to the craft and the career and the restaurant um, above all else. And you do, and you are thinking at 24, 24, 7, you know. Do you have to go through that, though? Does it have to be that way? I guess you, 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 know, you could be a career cook and... Be really happy working at a you know at a handful of restaurants where you know sort of cafe cooking or restaurant cooking, which is you know where where, where that's not the thing where you get to go home, you got a roster that suits you, and you know you're just you're happy having fun, right? And then you have got people like you know say myself or the Sid Sarawats or whatever where you kind of want to drive for that 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 extra push, and it has to be like that mm. because you can't you know you're constantly looking for how to improve. You know your mantra almost is. You know, um, you know. Uh, well, we used to say at the restaurant, you know, like you know, t- to, you know, today we'll aim for perfection, and tomorrow we'll try harder. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, you know, you can't, you know, you're constantly tweaking, you're constantly looking. Every time you go out somewhere else, you're looking, going, "That's a cool thing that they're doing. We should do that too." You know, like, what are those glasses they're using over there? Those wine glasses are beautiful. We need those, you know. Or so you're constantly spending money on things as well. And when I was spending forty thousand dollars a year on. On tablecloths that I actually didn't really need, you know, at the last restaurant because I wanted a white tablecloth restaurant. You, you kind of did really need that if you wanted to be taken seriously then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was it, you know, and you'd and you'd look to overseas restaurants and go right, well, how you know, and you travel a lot, and when you travel, even your holidays abroad, when you took them, were never about like let's go and sit. Well, it was research. It's research. <laughs> yeah. People go, oh, that's amazing. You get to eat in all these restaurants. You go, yeah, but I'm doing like. You know, I'd go to Sydney for like three days, or or, or over, over a weekend, or whatever, or Melbourne. I, you know, I'd go to Melbourne, for instance, and I, you know, and I, you know, you, you land at about nine, and you know, in the in, in the morning. Well, by nine forty-five, I'm sitting at Cumulus having my first breakfast of the day. You know, and then you know, and then I'd move on from there, and I'd have lunch, and then I'd have a second lunch, then I'd go back to the hotel, have a forty-five one-hour nap or whatever, and go out and do two, three dinners. And not because you wanted to sort of, you know, it was greed or anything like that, because it was like, right, we need to see as much as we can, when we can, one or two courses in each, of, you know, bites in each place, you know, these dishes that people are talking about or are being reviewed or whatever. And then you're on to the next one, and you know what that's like yourself, because it's, you know, it's a mad life. As people would say, oh, my God, you're so lucky. And you go, really? 
Yeah. I spend the day with me. I'm a highly trained athlete when it comes. I'm a thoroughbred when it comes to this sort of stuff. Most I call myself do. an extreme eater. Like <laughs> extreme eater. Most, and I guarantee that most of your friends look at you with envy. Could not last a day with you. They do. They do one of those meals and go, hey, "Are we done now?" And you're like, "Hell no! Come on." Let's go, sweet chicks. Three more to go. I tried to take my sister on a trip once with me and said, I'll just come, you know, like do a couple of days with me and then we'll, we'll try and get a day on our own together. <laughs> and she yeah. she didn't, she, by, by, by one o'clock in the afternoon, she had to go back to the hotel for a nap. Yeah. You know, right. and it's like I, I'm probably one of the the few people that would understand you because you know those nights where you lie in your hotel room and it's four o'clock in the morning and you've got yeah. acid reflux and you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking if I roll over the wrong way and I die, I it's hope these over. bastards are going to actually appreciate what I've done. For <laughs> That's exactly. Just sitting, uh, sitting on the sitting on the edge of the bed with your head down, going. Ooh. <laughs> 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 Moving on, boss. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, so it is. But but that said, though, I would say like it's a complete and utter. You know, it's a huge commitment. It's not just like reading Dish magazine and going, "Oh, look, there's a nice, you know, a nice sandwich, the sandwich filling to make." It's like it's, it's all consuming. It, look, browsery flip. Was yeah. born. First of all, why the name Flip? We basically plagiarised the name to a certain extent. There was a famous brasserie in Paris called Lip, L-I-P-P. And of course, this is pre-internet and everything like that. So it was all based on you know books or travel or whatever that we that we knew. And um, Dean came up with the name. He'd been to Lip in in, um, in Paris, and even the logo. We were just we just unashamedly stole their logo and just put a put an F in front of it. <laughs> But we, but we like, but that, and that's and that's where it came from. Flip the moniker just stuck. Actually, I don't know where the the original name came from um, in Paris, but I think it's slightly Germanic. But yeah, but Brasserie Flip with uh, the double P and the F. Yeah. And that was like the Three Musketeers. There was Dean Dunlop as the host, Marcus yeah. Daly running the floor, and then yeah. um, and then Martin yeah. Bosley on the pans in the kitchen. Yeah. So exactly what it was like. times. Oh, unbelievable! Just extraordinary. It was. I mean, Flip closed probably 14 or 15 years ago, maybe even more, actually. I don't know how long ago Flip closed, a long time. And there isn't a week goes by that someone doesn't mention that restaurant to me. Mm. It is is a restaurant that just indelibly left a mark on people's minds and the the fabric, the history of this town uh, with restaurants, really. And it was just... Money was, you know, money was flowing. People, people, people were having a great. Money. Actually, money was still tough, you know, because we're still coming out of the recession, which is why I think Flip sort of worked to a certain degree. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, it just rocked and rolled. Uh, what was your food like at the time? What were you influenced well, by then? We obviously were going to do a brasserie. It was like all of a sudden, I, so I started reading. You know, I went down to the library and started reading all about the brasseries of France, and I found a book, you know, the Great Chefs of France, and this, this is all pre-internet. So you had to read. So I just started researching it. And I just started to found, you know, from the food I've been doing at Givenate, which was, you know, quail breast stuffed with truffles and a chicken liver farce and, a, you know, whatever sauce. The techniques and the food and the robustness of some of this food really started to appeal. So I started cooking it at home, you know, to play around with these recipes. And there's just a sort of a lovely robustness of flavour and quite simple techniques. Um that really appealed. So, I mean, we were one of the first to do so. I mean, I, I read about risotto, you know, and uh, risotto in this country back then was stir fried with peas and carrots and things through it. It was going to be called that risotto, you know. And I'd read this this thing. And at the same time, Sabato had started up and they were bringing in the carnaroli rice, the short grain rice. And I was talking to Jackie Dixon, you know, about it. They seemed so. So, I made this, you know, lovely, creamy 
risotto, perfected it down, and we opened flip. And night after night after night, the risotto got sent back to the kitchen because it was called gluggy. Yeah. <laughs> and and in the end, Dean said to me, he said, that's it. We're taking that risotto off the, we're taking the, off, off the menu. We're never having that again. It's got to go. So we took it off, and I've still got it somewhere, but, I, we, but we were presented with a petition called Bring Back Flip Gluggy Rice <laughs> with, people, with, with, with all these names of people that said they actually they loved it and whatever. But also creme brulee, you know, like we were doing creme brulee, and every, every night people would go, that's not creme brulee. I make creme brulee at home. That's not creme brulee. So I go, well, how's your creme brulee? Yeah. And they tell me how they make it. So I changed the recipe and go, oh, well, okay, maybe that's how they make it. Every night. And then one day Dean came and he threw the creme brulee in the kitchen at the, at the wall. He said, fuck it. He said, that's it. We're never serving creme brulee again. And do you know what? We never did. These days it would be very, very different, wouldn't it? Because people travel oh. and people's palates are much broader and they're willing to experiment. But in those yeah. days it must have been incredibly frustrating as a chef oh, to have to cater to such yeah. a narrow-minded customer. All the time. I mean, you can, you can buy carnaroli rice now on your supermarket shelf and everybody makes risotto for Sunday dinner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we all we all know how to make it, but back you know, but back then it was like you know, so you know we had to be parsimonious in what we were doing. We didn't want to make course over twenty dollars, which is laughable when you think about it now, which meant looking at secondary cuts of meat. Back then, is what everybody was using fillet steak. Would you have also had that mindset of the people that had you know that had the spend would have been like, well, I don't I don't want to eat the off cuts. I want to eat the the fillets. Oh, totally. I mean, I remember ringing the butcher and saying, I want some lamb shanks, and he went, that's dog tucker. Mm. And he almost refused to supply it to me. And I said, no, no, I said, I want the, I want the lamb shanks. And because they were 90 cents each, and we, so therefore we could, you know, we could afford them. So, you know, and we soaked them and we braised them and they were delicious. But, you know, for a while there, we couldn't call them lamb shanks. You know, I called it like a, you know, a little uh, roast leg of lamb. Yeah, whereas now you'd be really proud of that. It, that'd no. be a menu that someone would search yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. we were only the first to use beef cheeks because, you know, it was, uh, and again, that was a butcher said, have you thought about using those? And so I thought it was good for cat food. And he said, just give them a go. It's a beef cheeks. Cheap, we put them on. Um, we did things like, you know, put farfalle pasta on there, but we had to explain what shape it was. So you go farfalle, brackets, bow tie pasta, close bracket, with this wee bow tie pasta. <laughs> so tell me about the figs. Oh, the figs. You, know, you couldn't buy figs like you can now. You know, they just it just didn't happen. Um, but there's fig trees growing all through Mount Victoria, up Elizabeth Street and others. And, uh, and I, <clears throat> I had a little Fiat Uno at the time. So at night, late at night, um, we'd go up to Mount Victoria. Julia would sit on the roof of the car so she could reach, and I'd drive up the footpath, and Julia would pick the figs and pass them down to me to put into, into a basket that had in the front seat. <laughs> so we'd collect these private things. We would denude all these trees in Mount Victoria, so we were constantly driving around looking for fig trees wherever we could. And, but I think people, and again, people don't, I don't think people realise that, you know, that fig trees were growing in Mount Victoria just you know, as part of the council planting. They were there. But no one was yeah, using them for anything. No one was using them. Like, you know, that's, when we just, that's when we discovered that Mount Victoria is absolutely full of olives. Mm. A few years ago, the City Council actually made a Wellington City Council olive oil out of them all. You were the first forager, Boz. Yeah, we were foraging before we even knew what it was. <laughs> it was just, you know, I remember like one of the fishermen um, from the fish shop that we were um, getting fish from was in his store one day. And uh, we, we were talking about mozzarella. And he mentioned that his, uh, that his nana uh, handmade mozzarella. At an island bay, and I was like, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah." So, oh, you know, do you want some? And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." So I visited her, his his old nonna out there in Island Bay, and back then in this country, mozzarella was a hard ball cheese and a shrink wrap thing that you grated. You know, we had we weren't you didn't see fresh 
soft mm. mozzarella. Mm. So I drive out to this house in Island Bay and I walk up the path and, I, you know, and around the back, the back of the house to the door. And here in the garden are growing these huge thistle-like things which turned out to be globe artichokes. Never seen them before. And, and uh, Roma, you know, um, plum tomatoes. I was like, what are these things? Right? And then I go into the kitchen and there she is and she's got these four large but beautiful balls of white mozzarella sitting on this table. And that's all that she'd make each week was these, these four these four things. We didn't get very much and I'd go there. And she'd be up at four in the morning kneading and stretching the mozzarella by hand, had a little string around it where, you know, where she'd tied the knot at the top to hang it to let, mm. it, you know, let it drip. And so in a pot on the stove were these artichokes that we were cooking with these chunks of potatoes. And her English was terrible. Remember I started you know, getting through to one day, like why the potatoes were in the pot. And she said because it was good for the artichokes and it takes some of the black away from the artichokes when they cook. And to this day, I throw potatoes in my pot whenever I cook artichokes because it works. Mm. And you know, so I grabbed these Roma tomatoes from her, uh, these balls of mozzarella, and uh, and we'd go back to the restaurant. And um, so and we put what you know what now everybody knows is caprese salad. You know, we'd put it on the menu, and people would say, "What is this cheese? It's amazing!" You know, because they'd never had soft mozzarella before. And also the tomatoes, people would go, "What is that? I can smell like that. Is it like is that what?" Is it? And I go, "That's a tomato." That's what a tomato smells that's, like. Yeah. That's what a tomato smells like. So it was the tomatoes and the mozzarella from her garden in Island Bay. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and just you know, a drizzle of olive oil, which is really just getting going in this country at that time as well, and some basil leaves, and people were like going, "This is delicious." It, that was always the prime mover was like, you know, the, the number one, it was like, is it delicious? Yes, then we do it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Two years at Flip. Who had Martin Bosley become by then? Oh, a nasty person. Martin Bosley wasn't a very pleasant individual at all. Um, burnt yeah, out? Burnt out. Burnt out in you know, early 20s. Didn't know what way was up anymore. Creatively, just everything. Burnt out in every way. You know, I was constantly angry. Flip was so busy, and also everybody was copying us. So we were constantly having to try and stay ahead of what you know of what all the naysayers, all the sorry, all the copycats were doing. Mm. Yeah, we always had to look for something new, and 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 that just became it was just relentless. Uh, and also, I think that drive for perfection, which I've always had, even in that brassy setting when you're doing 240 people for lunch on a Saturday, was still like, why can't you fucking poach an egg? Mm. Uh, like, and an egg would hit the wall, you know, like for fuck's sake, it's just a poached egg. Right, get it right, boom, start again, do it again. And it was just, you just become, you know. And I remember like one night actually, we'd had a really hard service and I'd made a couple of waitresses cry, you know, which is never a good thing. And, uh, and at the end of the night, I sort of bounced into the staff room and all the staff were sitting around and all sort of chatting. And I went, wow, fuck, that was a, that was a tough night. But hey, we all got through it, eh? Da -da -la -la team. And then someone said, you do realise that none of us actually like you, eh? And it was such, like, it was like a dagger to the heart. I said, like, what? And I'm like, we actually don't, you know, you bounce in here like, you know, it's all over. But actually, you've been really mean to most of us all night, and we actually don't like you. Oh, wow. And it was just, it was just like, fuck. And, so, was, and was that the beginning of the end for you there? Yeah, it was. Yeah, mm. yeah. And also, there was a hole in the staff room wall where I'd, I used to wear these big heavy wooden clogs back then. And I'd gone to kick. I'd gone to kick something one night because I was out of frustration. And I realized that as I was going through the action, I'd go to kick the edge of this bench that it was actually going to fucking hurt if I connected. So I sort of swerved my swerved my foot at the last minute, only for my clog to fly off the end of my foot, sailed through the air, probably about 30 feet, 
and bury itself in the staff room wall. And I said to the, the, the chef who I was annoyed at, uh, after I'd finished yelling, I said, now go and get my clog and bring it back to me. And they had to go and pull it out of the wall and bring it back and put it down on the ground so I could put my foot into it. When I returned to Flip several years later, that hole in the wall was still there and they'd, somebody had drawn a picture frame around it. And um, and they'd gone, you know, like Martin Bosley was here kind of thing. And when all the staff were gathered for my first day back there, you know, you could see the whites through their eyes because some of the cooks that were there when I left were still there and they told them all of these stories. And they were like, you're not going to last five minutes with this guy. He's just going to tear you apart. Yeah, petrified of you. Yeah, you know, get ready for, you know, like for this. And I changed. And I, you know, and I, and I, and I changed. So, so that, you know, that didn't happen. You know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't what happened and wasn't what occurred at all. Basically, you were yeah. experiencing full burnout and you headed to Port Douglas. Yep. To yep. a waterfront yep. bistro there um, yeah. and, and did that for a little while. And I, I'm sorry, but I got a fangirl here for a minute because you right. were John Farnham's chef. Yeah, I was, yeah. Johnny Farnham. Johnny Whispering Jack. Oh, please tell me he's as nice as he always seems. So nice. His family. Really? I love his family. Yeah. I absolutely. believe his wife is gorgeous as well. Gorgeous. Yeah. Absolutely. The kids, the whole lot, like just the most, like just a real, genuinely lovely family. And what were you doing with yeah, them? So they had a boat uh, in Port Douglas and, uh, and a residence at the Sheridan Mirage. So, yeah. So whenever they came up to Port Douglas, which was frequently, you know, I was. Um, I was the chef. Oh, looking after so, them. You know, so yeah, prepare the meals. We'll go out, you know, go out the boat. We'll make sure they had food for the boat or whatever. And, and often they'd, you know, they'd send someone up, and uh, and I get a phone call going, um, Boz, um, uh, Johnny Jack, no, Johnny or Jack is just, uh, he's got a uh, guest. He's uh, he's going to use the boat this afternoon. Can you come down? You know, get down with that, you know, pack cash. You know, oh, <laughs> I, you know, um, <laughs> you know what? One day it was like the skipper of the boat rang up. He said, "I got a guy." Ameri-. He said, "A friend of John's on board, an American guy. He's explaining some sort of sandwich he wants for lunch, but I don't understand what he's saying. Can you talk to him?" So this guy's on the phone, a New York accent, <laughs> describing the sandwich, and I go, "Oh, are you after a Reuben?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm after. I didn't know you. I'm in a Reuben. I right? Oh, I can. You can you do that?" I said, "Yeah, it's going to take me a few minutes, but I'll put a Reuben together for you." So we put together a Reuben sandwich, and I delivered it down to the boat, and it was John Belushi. Oh my god! You know, it was just, just the, I'm like, oh, you know, this is just what happens. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was great, but yeah, no, but being, yeah, being his, um, yeah, his personal chef was, yeah. But was, that wouldn't have been great, enough for you for long. I mean, I believe at that same time, then you ended up with running a catering business as well because you, you know, because you could. Yeah, it was. I'd gone there to find myself, right, just to like to work these kinks out and find a beach and a palm tree and sit underneath it. You know, that's what we wanted to do. And Port Douglas seemed. Like, you know, it was just getting going for it. There was this post, slightly post-Christmas case era. Mm. So Port Douglas was really recovering from from all of that, the airline strike and stuff. So it was kind of still in a re- very much in a recovery phase, which, of course, I was used to that working environment. So I got this job at a waterfront cafe. It wasn't really my sort of seeing the happy hour afternoons, and, and I was just banging food out. But it was tasty. You know, it was just, you know, easy. But, but for, for a lot of people, they'd never seen things like that sort of food before up there. Uh, and then the owner of one of the one of the boats out at the marina came to me and she said, Look, would you you know, my my usual cave was let me down and they're not back from Melbourne and the boat goes out tomorrow and can you guys do the food? So we did the food for them and they came back and said it's the best food we've ever had. And so we the restaurant continued to do it for about three or four weeks and the owner of the boat said, You need to leave this restaurant, I'll back you, you do the food for my boat. And I thought about it, I thought that doesn't seem like a bad idea, actually. So I quit the restaurant and started doing food for this boat. And then she bought a second boat because she'd made so much bloody money. 
So suddenly I was doing food for two boats. I was now catering for 70 people a day. And I was working out of a kitchen at a local motel that was only open in the evenings. And um, so during the day, I'd go in and prep mm. uh, and, 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 do, and do my thing there. Then somebody else on one of the other boat operators said, oh, could you do my food too? I didn't know. I'm unhappy with my catering. And so the business started to grow. And then the motel owners came to me and said, look, we're not good at running a restaurant, but it's clear to us that you kind of know what you're doing. Would you take the motel restaurant on? And this motel restaurant was doing like six people a night. It was like, yeah, sure, that's not a problem. We'll, we'll take it on. It gave me access, greater access to their kitchen, which, which, I, which I needed. First night, my car's in the car park. 60 people roll on in and they're like, are you cooking here now? I'm like, and I put together a real simple menu, right? Uh, like, just go, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And they're looking at going, where's the vegetable stack? Where's the, you know, where's the charcoal vegetables? The, you know, I'm like, really? I'm like, so we had to change the menu. I started doing like this greatest hits. So suddenly the restaurant became really busy and my life sort of got upended a bit with these, you know, working nights in the restaurant and the boats during the day. And then out of that grew the deli. There was, there was no deli in Port Douglas. You couldn't get decent cheese or decent bread. And I'd met Simon Johnson in Sydney a, year, a couple of years prior. So I rang him and I said, what do we, you know, how do we get cheese up here to Port Douglas? And he said, well, you know, so he explained all that. So we found a little site just down on the main road, down by the, um, right opposite the Courthouse Hotel, which was a secretarial services shop. But it was, you know, we turned it into like this, you know, this little deli, and we were selling Crabtree and Evelyn and Simon Johnson cheeses. And anyway, that first shipment of cheeses, I brought up, you know, wheels of Jindy Triple Cream Brie and uh, Meredith, you know, all those famous mm, Australian mm. cheeses, you know, which I just adored. And um, like day two, we'd sold out. Yeah. Um, I was like, holy shit, what's going on here? And you know, I rang Simon, we need more cheese. And I was like, what? I was like, yeah, like we were, we are powering through. And it was people from Melbourne and City who'd come to Port Douglas and like, you know, they wanted the stuff they could get back home. We had yeah. people from we had people from Cairns driving up. It all became a bit too much. So I got rid of the restaurant and built a catering kitchen because by now we were up to thirteen boats and we were doing five hundred people a day. Not the find a palm tree in a beach kind of no, scenario. Well, exactly. that you, yeah. I was starting I was starting to work at six plus we were starting to do out catering as well. Uh, from everywhere from the table lands on, and uh, it was, it was just mad, and it was, and it was, like, it was so much fun. Just had such a great time. Anyway, sold the deli, focused on the catering business and doing the boats. How did you get back to New Zealand? Because you ended up then back eventually back and with Judith. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so um, my um, Julia's father became quite sick, and so she was doing a lot of commuting between Australia and New Zealand come back and visit him and obviously with her nursing background she was doing a lot of the nursing so she'd be gone for weeks at a time then it became clear to us all that um Jerry wasn't going to last the distance and actually only a couple of days after she'd arrived back in Port Douglas from one of her visits he died so she flew back home and I guess then a, you know, a moment of personal crisis for her um the shock of of, uh, of losing her dad she didn't cope with that very well uh, and that created a whole new set of problems for us. And it just became clear to me that I really needed to be back in New Zealand and back with Julia. She was in no fit state to come back to Australia. Uh, and, um, yeah, and that mattered more to me than, um, than the businesses. So very quickly, I sort of wrapped things up in Port Douglas. And I miss it terribly. I mean, I think about I've still got friends there, and I talk with them every now and again. And they're like, I'm like, I really want to come back. And they're like, don't, don't come back. You'll hate it. It's not the same. It's changed so much. It's not the same. It's been over 20, well, it's been 25 years now, quarter of a century. And I thought Doug's a very different place, you know. And um, 
Yeah, I remember hiding Brooke Shields in my house once actually because she was they, she was in town. She was doing she was doing a photo shoot. I thought she was why she was in Australia, but she was. Anyway, I used to live behind this um, nature reserve wildlife park. I can't remember what it was called now. Right at the entrance to Port Douglas, as you go as you as you drove in, you know the bus pulled up outside the house. I lived right behind it, right you know right behind the cassowary pen, and uh, this bus pulled up, and um, and I was like, well, I'll open the front door to look out and see what was going on, and Brooke Shields and Entourage, you know, got out. Anyway, the next minute they were hounded by the the paparazzi came flying in. And they just came running for the front door. They said, do you mind if we come in and hide from these guys for a while? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> come on. I'm just like, I'm in a sarong and a, I'm in a, sarong and a tank top going, uh, not, not how I imagined I was going to meet Brooke Shields. And you didn't have a tray of canapes um, to hand and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing in. I'm sorry. You know, um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting visitors. Uh, yeah, God, it was just—it was so much fun. Oh, yeah, I just—I really, I really, did, I, really did, I really did love it there, and I just—it was incredibly good to me, Port Douglas, um, both you know, both commercially and personally, because I think, you know, during that time, I just, you know, I did—I learned to calm down. I just, mm. you know, and um, and I, I started to get a better handle and I understood on what it was that was motivating me and driving me, and you know, and creatively what I what I needed as a process. By being there and by calming down a bit, did you learn to not take yourself so seriously? Yeah, yeah. I realised it was only food. Yeah, yeah. Where did you end up? You ended up with Judith Tavron in Newmarket. Yeah, I ended up with Judith Tavron, yeah. So I came back to New Zealand, but I didn't need to work for a while. And um, But I got sick of sitting on my parents' couch, and I saw this job advertised at Ramsey's. And it was actually was a chef to party position. I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want. You know, somebody else to make all the decisions, and I'll just go and do what I'm told. So I went there and... Um, was going through the interview process. And I think I was on to the third interview. And I thought, fuck, well, this is a lot of interviewing for a chef to party position. <laughs> on the third, the third interview, Gerald, Judith's father, he presents this contract. And I look at it and it's got head chef. I'm like, oh, I said, oh, I think we've got the wrong idea here. So I'm, I was here for the chef to party position. That's what I thought we were talking about. And she was like, no, 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 we want you for the head chef position. I was like, oh, man, so <laughs> not where I wanted to be. But I said, okay, but I said, yes, I'll take it on. Um, I think I was probably there for um, probably about 12 or 14 months. Not, okay. not, very, not, very, not very long in the scheme of things. But it was great. Jude was fantastic. She's so good to work for, or work with, actually, because that's the sort of person that she is, you know. And she, again, and, and I understood Jude, you know. Um, like, she, again, she's passionate. She's driven. She takes no prisoners. She had this wonderful line, which, I, which, I, which I've often used, which is, so you're telling me that's the best you can do. <laughs> You know, with everything, it was like, so you're telling me that's the best you can do? And then people go, um, she said, no, no, it's a yes or no question. Are you telling me this is the best you can do? And, you know, you just to see people There's nowhere to hide with that, is there? You know, <laughs> yes, well, it's just clearly not good enough. No, well, why not? You know, why am I giving, why are you not giving me your best? It's like nowhere to hide. You know, and that's, and that's it with Jude. And, um, but, you know, Ramsey's was this phenomenally successful restaurant. She was there every day, you know, um, actively involved in everything. Even though she was near in the kitchen the whole time I saw her, people would go up to Jude and go, thank you for the most beautiful lunch, Jude. And you know, she'd go, no problem at all. I'm like, you know, Jude had never had, you know, seen a frying pan for a couple of years. But <laughs> but she knew exactly what was on the menu. Like no food without, went on that menu without Jude say so. I mean, the couple of menus that we did, you know, Jude and I sat down and we went through and went through every dish. And she had, if I said, I want to do this, that, the other, she'd go, yeah, add some tarragon to it. Or I think you should put some tomatoes and something else there. So she had, and you do it, 
you know, and often she was right. You go, oh, the tower was a was a great idea. She was groundbreaking in, um, in yeah, what she, she was, was doing. Yeah. Smart. Smart, like real smart, driven, successful, a woman running a restaurant and a woman out of the kitchen, you know. Because she'd come from the kitchen, she knew what chefs needed to get the job done right. So you had this fantastic space within which to work. Mm. And instead she, you know, of always she, being you know, the afterthought. Instead of being the afterthought, yeah, yeah. exactly. Right? It, was, it was really well thought out. It was well designed. It was, And she understood that, you know, you need to get prep done in order to make service quick and easy. You know, if you want to do big numbers, you have to be big on the prep. Mm. So we had guys that would come in and just do the prep. So you weren't constantly trying to prep and do service as you went, you know. From what I've observed, she was one of the people that really understood how to do big numbers. Yes, And absolutely. keep it interesting at the same time. Yeah. So then yeah. full yeah. circle back to Flip. Yeah, so then so I got a phone call from Dean um, saying it's time you came home. And Julia and I just had Isabella at that stage. And um, and he was right. We were kind of struggling a bit in Auckland, just the two of us, no family support, you know, newborn baby, me working lots of hours, Julia at home by herself in Waterview. And I think it was those words, time to come home. And I was like, he's absolutely right. I feel like I've been in the, I have been in the wilderness now for five years. And... Yeah, I think he was right. It was time to go home. Had New Zealand changed? Right. Food scene must have changed in that time that you were away. That time, I couldn't believe how much of that time it changed in that time. Even Wellington. I mean, I'd, I'd go back to Wellington once in that period of time that I'd been away. And Courtney Place was a completely different space to what it was when I left. You know, it had been done and it was full of vibrant bars and restaurants. Something like driving up and down. I was here for about a week, I think. And every night just driving up and down Courtney Place, looking at it with my mouth wide open, going, oh, my God. And, and, and actually feeling the twinge of jealousy going, I missed it. I missed the boat. I left at the wrong time. Look at these places. People were out. And the food was great and restaurants were humming. And I was like, man, I just, you know, I went and found that beach at the wrong time. You know, I, I, and I thought, that's it. No one's going to remember who I am. Look at what's going on here. I've, you know, I, you know I've, I've missed out. And I think partly that was one of the reasons I went to Auckland. It was like, well, you know, and the shift to party position. It was like, well, I'm just back. No one's going to really want to know. But then word kind of got out that I was back. But when Dean said it's time to come home, I was like, yeah, it is. And as you say, when I got back, it was not only had, you know, the food scene changed here um, and the Wellington scene changed, but obviously I changed as well. And uh, and I think we were much better suited to each other. So then you ended up back in Wellington and I believe that yeah. just as you got back there, then Dean passed away? Dean passed away about, yeah, about a week before I was due to, to, to come back. Uh, Marcus rang me and um, he was in tears and um, he said, I have some really sad news. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, um, Dean, Dean's died. And uh, I was just just devastated. Just, you know, it was so sad. Because he and was also, such, and, a, such a part of the, the whole thing. He was a huge part of the Three Musketeers, you know. Yeah. It was... You know, it was like, wow, this was this wasn't in the brochure. Like, you know, we were coming back, and it was like we were gonna, you know, totally unexpected. <laughs> yeah, not the return of the prodigal son or anything like that. But mm. it was, yeah, it was totally unexpected. You know, it was, it was, you know, it was a drug overdose. Dean, you know, Dean, Dean was um, was using drugs, and he yeah he OD'd on his own. I mean, really sad. You know, he OD'd. You know, he died alone in his bed in the afternoon. You know, oh. he'd gone home. He'd gone. You know, he'd gone home to. I can't remember what it was he was taking now. Heroin. That was heroin. And had he been it. had he been using for a long time? He'd been using for a while, yeah. Yeah. And I mean I mean I didn't know. I mean I'd suspect it, but I you know, but I didn't know. But I think it had got worse and um you know, his use his use had got worse. Such a yeah, waste, huh? 
Oh, such such a waste. I mean, Dean was so talented, uh, a genius, really. You know, a flawed genius. You know, he was so clever. Like, um, you know, and he knew how to set the tone in a restaurant, the lighting, the music. You know, like everything was. You know, he knew how to get all people those going. things that he made it special. Totally, he loved what he loved entertaining and looking after people and being naughty and being fun and being serious at the same time. Like he was great at reading tables. He obviously understood the theatre yeah. of it all as well. Totally understood the theatre. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, big yeah. bunches of flowers. Great, you know, um, lovely. You know, he was he loved antiques and art, right? So he had fantastic art. Well, restaurants didn't do great art then. You know, we'd commissioned art for the restaurant. His death was the inspiration behind the Felix Awards in Wellington. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Felix was um, Dean's middle name, Dean Felix Dunlop. Right. Yeah, and uh, Jeff Kennedy from uh, who's now got prefab, he came along and he said, you know, he said we need a an Oscars type night for hospice scene in Wellington to celebrate our heroes. We you know we need something like that. Every other industry's got one. Why don't we? And we were like, yeah, that's right. And so we the group of us sat down together and nutted the whole thing out. And when it came to a name, it was like, well, you know, Jeff, you know, the Felix Awards. You know, you know, Dean Felix Dunlop. So those, those first few years where Dean's face was there, and that's what was called the Felix Awards. And, of course, mm-hmm. that, you know, that spawned the Lewishams and everything else after that all sort of followed a similar format. It was done to celebrate Dean's absolute commitment and passion to the industry because it was – things changed. You know, back then, until we opened Flip, you know, I mean, people sit down at a table now and, you know, and water and glasses are brought to the table straight away. That didn't happen. You know, Flip started that. It was a thing Dean had seen in France. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of changed the whole expectation yeah, of what going out for dinner was. Yeah. 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 You know, those little silver table talkers that, that people have now, those stand up at the table, those little things they slide menus into. You know, we went to, um, Dean and I went to Sydney on a research trip. We went to a restaurant called Taylor Square and uh, we're upstairs, restaurant's busy humming and they had these things on the table. And Dean said, these are great. Look at these. He said, they're fantastic. We need those. And I said, yeah, these are these. I said, these are awesome. He said, steal it. I went, what? He said, take it. I went, what, what the fuck do you mean? And he goes, he goes put it in your pocket. I'm like, Dean? Like, I'm like, okay. So, so Every like, restaurateur's nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. I know. He's like, do it now. There's no one looking. Grab this thing, slide it into my, inside my jacket pocket. I, and for the rest of the night, I'm sweating. Going, Someone's going to come and go, where's the big silver thing from the middle of the room, the table gone, you know? No one said a thing. And we go to pay and we're leaving. I'm thinking I'm going to get tapped on the shoulders. I'm going down the stairs. And I'm going to end up in the Sydney jail for the weekend. Thanks, Dean. You know, the whole thing. For the rest of the night, I'm walking around Sydney as we're going to all these different bars and places with this silver thing, you know, burning a hole through, you know, through, my, through, through, through my conscience. And uh, we, but we get, you know, we get back to Wellington and we went to, uh, you know, the, the, the metal worker that we used and we said, we need these. And he went, sure. Copied them, made them put them on the tables. Now restaurants all over the place have got them. But, you know, people had never seen that before. And on one side was the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday special of the day kind of thing. You know, so they looked smart. They weren't like the naff things that were going around at the time. As you, you know, say, like, staying one step ahead all the time. All the time, yeah. It was and it was such a game changer. You know, Marcus with the guys in the bar, and, you know, we, we, we had barmen that were flaring. We got barmen out of London flaring. Oh, what you know, a time, like, huh? It was like, what a time, like spinning bottles and, Things people going, oh my god, the bar just jumped, yeah. you know, all the time. People could smoke in restaurants back then as well, so smoking, drinking, you know, bottles of champagne flying left, right, and seeing the great food coming out of the kitchen and just this absolute buzz every night. It was just brilliant. Yeah. And people driving us forward, it was just like, what else have you guys got? What else? You know, what else can you do? Like, show us, we'll take it, we'll do it, we'll eat it, you know. 
we'll be into it. I mean, you worked very hard for it, but how amazing to be in that situation, huh? Oh, so fortunate. Yeah. So, so fortunate. So you left yeah. Flip before it finally closed. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'd gone back, and Marcus and I sort of boxed on for a couple of years, and we were just going in different parts, I think, you know, in terms of what I wanted to do with the food and where Marcus wanted to go with the restaurant. And also we were fighting all the various legal battles to Dean's will was being contested over ownership and flip, and it was getting really ugly, and I just didn't want to be around that anymore. I couldn't see a great outcome, unfortunately. Uh, I guess uh, I guess when you've had, like, three strong characters like that that have built a vision, then when one piece suddenly goes, it really changes yeah. the game, doesn't it? Yeah, the whole the, the, the dynamic shifted, mm. yeah. I wouldn't say we're rudderless. Marcus did a great job of still, of still leading, but we were so shocked by Dean's passing and leaving us that we didn't quite know what to do for a while. Yeah. It was like, fuck, well, what happens now? We were never going to be the same. We weren't the same. And I, and I valued my friendship with Marcus too much. I was like, you know, I think, you know, I want to remain your friend rather than it turns nasty and turns bitter. Mm. A bit so, like a marriage, also, huh? It was like a marriage, yeah. And also Isabella was, you know, she was maybe about, I think she was turning two at the time. And Julia was back at university studying to be a midwife. And I, and I thought, I just think I just want to stay at home and spend some time at home with my daughter and see, I had no plans. I was like, I'll just see what happens. See if the phone rings, you know, and hopefully it will. And it did. So I had a couple of years of working from home, um, looking after my daughter, which was which was an amazing, amazing, amazing time. You know, taking her to the playgroup, picking her up at three o'clock and would hit the beach or do whatever. So I had to condense my work day into her playgroup hours. But at least you could at and, that but stage. I could. Mm. Yeah, but I, mm. you know, but I could. And again, it was a time of peace for me. And uh, and you know, and you know, and, and obviously a bit of reflection going on about what I wanted to do and. I'd always wanted to do a seafood restaurant. Always wanted to do a seafood restaurant because, you know, Flip was all about meats. You know, it was because you couldn't get great seafood. You know, our access to seafood was so limited. It was so poor. You know, you've got three choices of fish. You know, snapper, teriyaki and harpooka. That was, or an orange roughy. You know, that was kind of, the, uh, you know, you got you got bluff oysters when they were in season. You couldn't even really get rock oysters back there. You could get rock oysters in Auckland or Pacifics, as they're now called. But you couldn't really get them in Wellington. And if you did, people didn't want to eat them because the only oysters are bluff oyster, right? Um, you know, you could get white bait when it was in season, but there was really, you know, you couldn't get clams or cockles. You could get green shell mussels, obviously, but that was an industry that was only really just getting going. It was also sort of felt like a little bit of pioneering stuff was going on around you, but access to it was limited. But I knew we had great seafood out there, especially after, you know, being in Australia and just that, you know, the abundance of seafood there, especially somewhere like Port Douglas. It was like, you know, why can't we get this here? Like, especially when I'd seen. Some of the fish that I was buying in, in Australia, I'd go, where'd this come from? They'd look at me like I was dumb and they'd go, New Zealand. I'd go, I've never seen this. I've never seen gold band snapper in New Zealand. You know, I've never, you know, we don't get it. Like, well, that's where it's from because, you know, so much of our fish is, is exported. Mm. And I also knew that wherever I wanted to do this restaurant had to be by the waterfront. And in Wellington, those places are really limited. There's just not that many sites available, apart from the Yacht Club and uh, the Royal Port Nicholson Yacht Club. And then one day I was just reading the paper and that um, the, the, the tenants who'd been in there for a while running that restaurant were in um, court proceedings with, uh, with the club itself over the, over the tenancy. And I thought, oh, shit, it's not a happy ship down there. Pardon the pun. <laughs> so I rang the club and I said, hey, if this thing turns to shit, I'm interested. Right? And then I rang the tenant and I said, you really want out. I'm interested in, in taking it over from you. 
And he was like, I'm not going anywhere. That's a great little business. We love it. And I went, okay. And the yacht club's like, we can't wait for them to go. We'll give you a call. So basically, I just became this really annoying person for the next six months and uh, in, the, in, the, in the ear of the guys, the, the incumbents were ringing pretty much each week and going, are you ready to move on yet? Like, how's that court case going? Just yeah. let me know. Like, still here, still just want you to know that. Don't forget just, about me. Yeah. Don't, you know, if, you know. So anyway, the, the tenant won the court case. I was like, oh, shit, this is going to turn to crap. So about six months later, the, uh, the tenant rang me and said, do you still want a restaurant? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, we're selling. I said, brilliant. A mate of mine who was a huge, passionate foodie and, uh, and shared a similar vision for wanting to do a seafood restaurant um, with me, uh, we bought it and we set about building uh, what became Martin Bosley's. By the time you went into that, you had a bit of a different approach again? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, one was, one was in terms of staff, right? So um, Julia had had a number of mental health issues. So, you know, the fact when she first got them, you know, no one really understood what depression and things was, right? You know, we didn't talk about it. It was, mm. you know, but now through Julia's bipolar, um, sorry, manic depressive phases, I've, but I had a better handling on what, you know, what can happen and the fact we don't talk about it and mental health and kitchens. And we were all suffering badly as a result of the environment. So I thought, if I've got guys working 80 hours a week in a kitchen, I've probably got room to hire another cook and they can do 40 hours each. And they might not earn as much money, but I reckon they'll be a whole lot happier. So I got away with the double shifts and the split shifts and the things that I'd always been working at Flip and other restaurants because, you know, that was just how things were done. And I said, this is going to be Monday to Friday because that says you weren't open on the weekends and it'll be single shifts. And it was kind of like, what? You can't do that. Unheard of, yeah. yeah. It was unheard of. It was like, yep, yeah, this is how we're going to do it, you know. And um, we're going to have someone that will just do X job because cooks shouldn't have to do that and waiters shouldn't have to do that. We'll have someone that does that, right? Because, you know, if you're carrying food, I don't want you cleaning the toilets half an hour before, the, before our customers come in. I thought I need a better, a better approach to how I work with people and be a kinder person. That being said, the passion and the drive was still there. And there'll be some cooks that say, he's a madman. I could, you know, he, he's out of control in that kitchen. But I would say those people that tell that story or those stories are the ones that just couldn't handle the pressure of being in that kind of environment. Because Monique Fiso came out of that kitchen, Dave Verhul came out of that kitchen, Peter Gunn came out of that kitchen, uh, Paul and Ellie came out of that kitchen, um, wow. Amy, Amy Gillies came out of that kitchen, you know, Steve Marnie, my head chef, he and I were together for 20-something years. Uh, my sous chef, he stayed for 11 years. So, you know, I can't have been that bad a person, given, you know, like, you know, given what was going on. Um, it was people that were, who just couldn't handle the, I guess, the pressure of going, just get it right. Just, you know, like, it's just, it's really simple. Get it right, you know, and it's not that hard. What we're doing is not that difficult. It's that thing, isn't it, of, of um, at the end of the day, yes, you, you want to be a kinder person and a better boss and you want to foster um, great relationships with your staff, but at the same time, you still need a certain level of yeah. dedication and application, don't you? Like, they, they've got to want to be in it. Yeah, but, uh, but I think... What I'd, what I'd realised was that you know, it was my early years of flip of screaming and bullying and carrying on and like a like a mad bastard it was because I was scared. I was it was fear, and and I was and and, I, and it was a fear of being caught out, because what I was doing I found relatively easy. You know, I was slicing tomatoes and mozzarella and pouring olive oil and basil over the top. People mm. were going, "Oh my god, it's amazing!" I'm like going, "It's not that hard." And one day you're all going to figure this out, and you'll go, 
you charlatan. Right. So you you yeah, had the like, imposter complex, like you're oh, waiting for someone totally. to tap you on the shoulder and say, Constantly "Games up." Waiting. Games up, mate. This is you know you've been fooling people for years, you know. By the time it got around to Martin Bosby, so I dealt with that. And I didn't have it anymore. Yeah. You know, I was like, I, and I was confident in what I was doing. You're happy in your skin. Totally happy in my skin. Happy in my creativity, and also it was an environment at the club where, that restaurant where, I could just. You know, it, it was like I've done every, and I've made a name for myself. The, the, the Martin Bosi was never going to be about making a name for myself. It was like I've done that. This is going to be a little seafood restaurant on the waterfront that I've always wanted. But I'm just going to have fun, and I'm going to play around with flavors. And I'm just if they don't like it, they don't like it. But it's it's a manageable size. You know, 45, 60 seats. Hey, you know, it'll be it'll be it'll be a dollar, right? People like what we were doing, and 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 we had you know we you know, I had fun experimenting with flavors, and we had fun experimenting with technique. And exploring new things and new and, and, and new ideas, and so I found by instead of yelling and screaming at people and going for fuck's sake, it's you know get it right. And why is this ice cream not churned properly? You know, da, 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 it's just ice cream. I'd be I'd be like, hey, here's why this is important. Yeah. Like, and and it would be you and me. Let's go into the fridge for a few minutes. And let's have a little conversation. And it wouldn't be like I'm gonna fucking rip you and you you know whatever. It was like this is why this is important to me. Now while you were here. It's really important to me that you share my goals. Is this the best you can do? Yeah, this is just the best you can do because yeah. I need to know. Because I need to know. Yeah, yeah. Right, because I need to know. You know, I need to know where we're at. But it feels and like what shifted was that um, in the earlier days, it was you. If you had that that sort of complex hanging over you, then it was by you making this mistake, you're going to make me look bad. Whereas by the time you got to the yacht club, it was I can actually help you with this. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you were confident yeah. about the fact that you had the knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you went in there, it wasn't open to the public at first, was it? It was a, like a members thing? Yeah, it was members only, which is what I thought was perfect about it, was that you know, I was just dealing to a whole bunch of yacht club members who were, all, who were largely corporate members as mm. well. So it was lunches only. Uh, and uh, and a captive and a captive audience. I believe the mayor got involved and begged you to open to the public to stop all the requests for favours coming oh through. Oh you have done your research. Wow, <laughs> wow, Kelly. Um, well, I got to keep yeah. it moving along, Boz. You know. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you've done your research. Yeah. So I get these calls all the time. I like to book the license. So I'm sorry if you're not a member, you can't come. You need to come with a member because that was the requirement of the, of the liquor license. We were under a, a club license. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of those anomalies in the act. And so if you were a general public, unless you were a member of the club, you couldn't dine. And people go, oh, nothing's wrong. And I go, yeah, I agree. It's crazy. It's mad. But that's just the way it is. And then I started to say, look, call the mayor and tell her what's going on. And tell her that, you know, you want to come for lunch. And it kind of started out as a joke, really. But people, I think people started to do it. Because then one day I got a phone call from Kerry going, would you stop telling people to call me? And let's get you, what do we have to do to get you open to the general public? We need you open to the general public. And I said, well, quite a bit actually, because there's resource consent issues and existing right, existing use issues and whatever. Open consent and closed consent. And anyway, we we engaged some consultants and they came in and someone found a scrap of paper that went right back to the old Wellington waterfront days. It indicated that actually, because there'd been future use on the site for some reason, we were able to apply for our own liquor license and open to the general public. Uh, but for that bit of paper, I don't think we would ever we would ever have got it through. We we opened, we got the liquor license, we opened to the general public, we opened nights. Suddenly we we're doing Saturday nights and Sunday nights. So that changed the game plan and, uh, again, didn't it? And that, because... that totally changed the game plan. Mm. So we had to double up on our staff. We had we had more staff. You know, we needed 
we needed extra staff or we needed, you know, you know, also we were there at nights and what was that, you know, what was that going to do? And, the, you know, the menu had to change. And What was Martin Bosley's food by well, then? Well, it had, it had changed enormously because actually opening nights and opening to the general public coincided really with, with Rachel Tolderley coming in, into New Zealand with, with you know, starting Yellow Brick Road. And Rachel had actually um, had written, was, was writing among the other things that she was doing, which was she was putting fish into the US, not into New Zealand at all. Uh, through Yellow Brick Road, a company that she started over there with an American business partner. She did a little interview of a series that she was doing for Cuisine Magazine, actually, on on chefs. What makes Martin Bosby, or Al Brown, you know, like what, what else do you do besides cook? We all know you cook, but what else? Just short little 250-word little essays. Mm. And we sat at the bar, and we got on like a house on fire, and we started talking fish and all those things and what she was doing. And, you know, as it turned out later on, we had a, you know, a shared passion for this country's food culture and what it means. And, and, I, and I just said, oh, my God, I'd love to have a look at that fish. And she said, well, if you can get enough guys together or whatever, then I'll, I'll get some down. So she made that happen, and she sent a whole bunch of us in Wellington, you know, this fish, and we were all, all fizzing going, we'd never seen fish like it of so, that quality. So that was kind that of quality. like the beginning of her turning sort of inward from yeah. from focusing on, on promoting Export. New Zealand outside to, to yeah. oh, wow, there's actually a business in here. Yeah, and it became a thing of like, you know, of, of we are the best people to showcase our products right yeah. here in New Zealand. Yeah. You, know? Yeah. you know, and how can we do that? How can we show people, you know, the hard, what, you know, what hard work our fishermen and harvesters do to make sure this product is, you know, is, is, is accessible? How do we tell that story? Which is still the ethos for Yellow Bit Road today. Mm. Is like, how do we tell your story? Yellow Bit Road's got a huge name but it, and, and a story in its own right. But what we're good at is we is telling the stories of the fishermen that we work with because that's what's important to us. So, yeah, so suddenly I had access to the seafood that I'd always wanted. It was, you know, it was more species and it was, you know, Cladabay clams were just getting going. So all of a sudden we had clams and those crabs. It was just like, it was nuts. So suddenly this, this passion that I'd had for seafood that had been sort of slowly simmering away suddenly just got ignited and we were off like a rocket. And combined with that New Zealand food story at that perfect Probably. sort of point, yeah. what would yeah. the menu have looked like if I'd walked in at that stage? Uh, it was it was lush. It was luxury. You know, it was it was a luxurious menu. You know, we'd, we'd gone from these nice little tiny hard cardboard covered things with, you know, five entrees, five mains and five desserts on, which was what was for lunch, to, you know, a big gorgeous menu. First of all, it was a big statement and a commitment from us about what it was we were doing. Uh, and then inside was, you know, there was our entrees and then there was, uh, the, you know, the degustation was listed there as well and there was the tartares and it was things like, you know, I didn't want to do one tartare, you know, I wanted to do, you know, like, I had access to all this fish so I wanted to do all of it. So we did three tartares on one plate and we caught, you know, we caught, and became the trio of tartares. Amazing, yeah. You know, and it was just, yeah, exactly, it was amazing and we, you know, and I'd, um, you know, the sashimi plate, which became really famous as well, was because we, we, we plated that in, in a really organic way, like on a bit of wet cedar wood, so you had the smell of the cedar coming up and then the little kite bag holding the oysters. And, you know, we became sort of quite organic in how we were plating food. And, we, and also the food presentation started to be driven by the environment. Like when I first started there, the food on the plate was really static because that's the environment I'd been in. But outside, I was surrounded by movement and the elements. You know, there was the wind, or there was the sun, or there were these waves, and it was like, how do I connect the food and the smell? To that yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's when we started. To, how do I get movement? So we that's when we started doing the the drag or the swoosh, or whatever you want to call it, on the plates, because it wasn't. We weren't copying it from anywhere. Oh, I'd actually seen it at Michelle Bra when I ate there, but it was like it felt like 
movement on the plate connected through the window to the movement outside. Sources were done in lines down the plate because they were they were reflective of the masts outside the window. So everything kind of made sense. What was happening visually? So it wasn't inside. just a smear. Exactly. It was. It was all about what was happening. What's happening inside is connected to what's happening outside. And that's where we sort of look at the, you know, the, the, you know, the environment. We're like, oh, we're, you know, fish is coming in, and we, you know, we season beef. You know, we we say mint sauce with lamb because you know, wild mint and the lamb eating it, oregano. Um, Horseradish because the beef are eating the horseradish, and you know these sort of traditional seasonings that we that we put with, um, I guess those sort of beef and meat, those meat proteins. What we were seasoning fish with, and that's when I realised that we were putting you know, immediately we were putting pepper on fish, and I was like, well, pe- pepper doesn't exist in the marine environment. All too often we were reaching for the salt and the pepper, just out of habit. So we eliminated pepper from fish. Oh we gosh, said, right, no, yeah. no, 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 no more pepper, just salt only. And eventually, we eliminated pepper from everything. Salt is the seasoning, and pepper is a spice. So salt enhances flavour. Pepper changes it. So then we, then we look to various. Well, how do we get that heat in? You know, how do we get that spice, that peppery spice in, to a dish if we want it there? So that's when, you know, radishes or horseradish or turnips and mm. things like you know, you know, watercress started. They started to play a big role in what I was doing because that became a natural source of the heat rather than pepper. I mean, there, there was pepper on the tables if they wanted to put pepper on their food. They were more than welcome to, but we weren't. So it marked us like a period of like, like a re- again of uh, you know new techniques and really experimenting and and looking at what we were doing and why we were doing it. You know, if I had five varieties of fish every day, you could choose what fish you wanted with the dish. So the dish was listed, but not the fish. So I would say so never said uh, snapper with cauliflower puree, spinach, and whatever. Well, you you choose your dish, and then we would say, what fish would you like? You weren't locked into what what had to be you on were, the menu. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't like harpuka, but I really like the sound of that dish. It's like, then you have it with a snap. But, but some people would go, I don't know which which fish is going to go best with that, and we go, the blue cod is definitely the one to go for, because it's going to work really well with those flavors. So, you know, we had this interaction going at the table with the waiters and the, I guess that was beyond what would you like to order, you know, what and for your mains. Yeah. You know, like so we were talking to people and they were saying. Why have you said fitty anger on here? I go, because that's where it comes from. You know, um, we had uh, a statement on the menu that said, all our fish is, is, uh, is wild caught by day boats using sustainable fishing methods. And Kiwis would come and they go, eh, of course it's wild caught. And I go, that comment's not there for you. That comment is there for our tourists that come in and go, how old is the fish? Mm. And we were saying to them, it's fresh, like it came in this morning. And they were like, no, no, how old is it at the harvest? We realise that most of the world is dining on farmed fish. Not, you know, we're really spoiled here that our fish is wild. Yeah, still wild caught, and so, it's like, and we get people going really like this. This is this is wild fish. I've never had wild fish before. Yeah. So, we, so the statement was there for the tourists. You know, wasn't it for the locals? And similarly, we said grass-fed beef, and he was going, "Of course, it's grass-fed." And I go, "Here it is. You go to America. Go to Canada." Yeah, like it's it ain't grass fed there; it's all grain fed. But it would have also opened up a conversation, I would think, with your um, with your customers or with your diners about the different species as well, which in those days wasn't being had, was it? No, it wasn't being had, and we were also looking at at, you know I hate that term secondary or bycatch, right? Or secondary, we shouldn't call them secondary cuts because in many ways they're the premium cut because they've got more flavour, you know. As we all you know, that, that whole conversation around an animal died here. Let's let, let's not start classifying parts of it as being inferior to the rest of it. So we so we were looking at at at, um, at bycatch, and we just started to call it lesser known. 
and we go listen known species. The one, you know, what are our listen known species that we can feature? And because if we're going to affect change, it happens here in restaurants. So let's let's give people Ling, all right? And people go, ooh, Ling, what's that? And I go, it's amazing. We've done a little fish soup with it. You wait till you taste it. But you were way, way, way ahead um, of the crowd yeah. then, because I mean that wasn't it, that wasn't happening in Australia in those days. That, that those conversations yeah. came much later, didn't they? They, yeah, you know, they did. But I, but I wanted those conversations to take place because I was really proud of what we were doing mm. and, and the lengths that we were going to to do it. So I, I wanted that conversation to be had rather than people just like going, nice piece of fish. I was going. This was caught by a guy called Simon. And if you want his phone number, I can give it to you. If you know, if people go, that fish was amazing. You want to tell us? You want to tell the fisherman? Because I'll give you his number so you can talk to him directly. Yeah. You know, it was. Or if you go, oh, I didn't like that piece of fish. Well, here's his number. You tell the fisherman you didn't like his fish. So I wanted to share those stories. So I mean, there were days that you know, some, I'd, I'd look at the menu and go, oh my god, we're looking like a geographical map of the country. <laughs> because you know, you know, we, I was putting provenance next to everything. Live in asparagus. You know, it was because again, I thought I thought it was important that we were pointing to where we were getting things from, being transparent, entirely transparent, absolutely. You know, and it was, and also, you know, we had a number of raw fish dishes on the menu, and we all go, "Why have you got so many raw fish dishes on the menu?" I go, "Because our fish is so fresh, yeah, you can eat it raw, right?" And I want you to know that's how fresh our fish is. That I proudly have got three raw fish dishes on this menu. Right, because you know, because you know, when, you, when you're doing raw fish, you can't hide. No. You know, about how fresh your fish is. And if it's is. absolutely beautiful, pristine fish, there's no better way to do it, is no there? No. No. People used to walk into my kitchen and go, "Your kitchen just smells so good." I go, "Yeah, you know what? Because it just because it was it just always smelled clean. Like we 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 got rid of lamb off our menu very early on because lamb made the kitchen stink, it made our chopping boards stink, and it made the fridge smell. And I walk in and go, "What the fuck is that smell in here? Like it's so bad." And Stephen would go, I've just done a lamb rack. And I go, Jesus, it's bad. And then one day I say, you know what, that's it. No more lamb. Right? Wow. Lamb's just, you know, well, we love it, but it's got no place in this kitchen. Big thing for a New Zealand restaurant to say Big no thing. more lamb. Big thing for a New Zealand restaurant to go, no lamb. Mm, mm. We did, you know, we did beef. And but, but we'd go, well, what else can we do? Menus are quite prescriptive, right? They become, we've got one fish dish, beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and a vegetarian. Yeah, try doing a recipe magazine. Right? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear I you. Did, yeah. I do not envy you at all. But that's what, you know, but that was what it was. So we were like, well, if we're going to take that off, we've got room. Well, we could put a duck on. Why don't we put duck on? You know, and if we're, we can, let's do a venison dish instead of that. You know, like, let's expose other meats here that aren't, that, 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 that need, rather than just doing a special of the day with it. Like, actually, let's, like, let's make it a menu item. Yeah. And also at the time, I was consulting to McDonald's, developing a range of meals and things for them. And I was in the kitchen one day in their um, food science lab. And everything there's all these little bottles and things of you know of like real lemon essence worth about ten thousand dollars for a hundred mil, or nature identical lemon scent juice, whatever. And they have all these little flavorings. And this, this company doesn't just do McDonald's; they do lots of other companies as well. Now, you know flavorings and essences and things. And they say excruciatingly expensive in this high tech, state of the art facility. And uh, we're trying to make a lemon dressing, and I said to one of the guys, I said, I've just been reading about this Spanish chef called Ferran Adria. This is to the food scientist. I said, he's doing this thing with, he makes like these caviar balls. I said, he gets like a juice of a melon and he makes like a little ball. I'm going, oh yeah. He said, that's, um, that's like food science 101. He said, that's alginate and chlorinate. I'm like, oh. He said, do you want to do it? I said, what now? He goes, yeah, yeah. He said, take five minutes. 
she goes to the staff fridge, grabs the thing of orange juice, grabs these two chemicals, mixes them up the next wow. minute. I'm, like, I'm like, holy shit, that's it. He goes, what else is this guy doing? So I started rattling off a number of other techniques that I'd read about. He went, oh, look, that's easy. Let's do that now. <laughs> I'm like, so I was like, oh, my God, this is that thing that I've been reading about. This you're, is cool. You're doing molecular gastronomy. So I said to him, and he couldn't buy any of those ingredients here yeah. in New Zealand either. And I said to him, I said, can I take this back to Wellington? He said, yeah, yeah. So we made these little bags up of these chemicals. Got back to Wellington. I said, watch this. <laughs> right? And the guy's like, holy shit, we've got to do that. I'm like, I know, right? So we started playing around with it. And all of a sudden, we became the molecular guys. We were doing the stuff. We had access to the chemicals. No one else was. And people were coming to see what we were doing. Other chefs were coming down from Auckland to see what we were doing. Did you become like the we... drug dealer for the chefs? Well, no, I wasn't going to share it with anybody. Maybe <laughs> it was my thing. But we, we, you know, we only did that for like about 18 months or two, not even two years. But we, but we played around with that and technique. And from that, we learned some great techniques without the chemicals. That must have been really interesting then because it was like you get that knowledge from the, the science behind it, but then you can take it back to real flavours. And That was it, yeah. And that's what we were doing. All around us, technology was leaping forward, but in kitchens, it doesn't really. You know, it, it's still kind of the same. You know, you're still cooking on gas, boiling, steaming, frying, roasting. And, and little colourful you know? balls of things just make everything yeah, more sudden, interesting. Yeah. All of a sudden, we had this we had this technique that was going to go, people will stop and think about this and go, that's that's extraordinary. How did you do that? You yeah, know, yeah. with the rest of their attention. And, and we present them a different texture when they were eating, you know. Anyway, one day I walked past the, the, the dry store shelves and I just looked at them and, and amongst all the, you know, the cinnamon and the nutmegs and the fenugreeks and the whatever, were all these chemicals. And I just said to Steve, we used to be a kitchen and now we're a science lab. I said, we spend more time mixing these things up and deconstructing things to make them look like themselves again than anything else. I said, that bring me the bin. And I just, and I just bent the whole lot. I said, that's it, no more. We're going back to food. No more chemicals. Gelatine will be it. Agar, maybe. I said, but the rest of it's going, no more caviar pearls, no more of this, no more twisting yeah. chocolate. It, it, was a, like, it was an no. interesting period, but um, it did get to that, didn't it? Because when you it suddenly did. sit down and you've got a, a Greek salad that's been deconstructed and re, yeah. um, you know, hydrated and everything else to turn it into a Greek salad, you think, well, why didn't we just... Look, Why didn't yeah, we just make a really good salad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like we, you know, we'd, you know, we'd get like these beautiful olives, smash the living shit out of them, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and then make it look like an olive again. Or a pea. My epiphany was when I, I was given yeah. this pea that had been, you know, smashed and pulped and put through a sieve and, and dried and rehydrated to create the perfect pea. And I was like... Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was wrong with it? So I said, what was wrong with the pea in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was like nothing. It was all, you know, it was just... Um, but, but having said know? all of that, the learnings that you get from all of that experimentation and all of those techniques are something that are, it's just priceless, huh? Absolutely. Mm. You know, and, you know, and um, yeah, actually, the Hiakai thing I've just done last weekend, you know, one of the dishes there has got this uh, little blood orange sponge on it, which was one of those... Te- and that's just gelatin, you know, but we're still, you know, that, that dish is probably 10 years old with a mozzarella ice cream. And it just, you know, it still stands up today. I'm yeah. like, this, this is still a good dish. Yeah. And, that's still a, and that's still a great technique because we're not adding chemicals to this. We've just got gelatine, but it's how we've treated the jelly after mm. and, and we make the jelly and you whip it and it comes up like marshmallow, like a, like a sponge. But I think we became, we became tired after that for a long time as the molecular guys, even though we weren't actually doing it anymore. And this was still at the Yacht Club? 
Best just thought at the Yacht Club. Mm. I remember you told me once that you'd received a Cuisine Good Food Award one year and then you got nothing the next. Yeah. Was that was that during this period? Yeah. So we, we won we won wrestling of the year and then the next year we got nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry I shouldn't <laughs> laugh, but it's... And I no, and I rang and I said, What? And they, I said, nothing's changed here. I said, if anything, we're a better restaurant because we had to be, right? Because the thing, the thing about winning winning restaurant of the year. Yeah, I hear this all the right? time. Is, mm. is is the perception, right? That yeah. the public now have of you. And I mean, we were being criticised. The moment we picked up the phone, I'd like to make a reservation, please. Like, oh, well, that wasn't very nice. You know, it's like our phone, Matt. It was like, you know, we had staff members going, when that phone rings and you answer it, I need to hear the smile from the kitchen. Because we then realised that people were booking months in advance. You know, they were waiting. You know, this night they turned up. They'd been waiting for, and they'd been looking forward to, and they'd told their friends about it or whatever. So their expectation. In fact, I wrote it down on a on a list. I can't remember how it all went now, but it was the, the evolution of the dining experience. And I was like anticipation. You know, like they are wildly excited about coming here, building it up. Expectation is really high. The close they get to the door, like right, it's actually happening. They're walking through the door trepidation, right? What if it's not as good as I think it's going to be? What if anything, like from the moment in the door, what if someone wasn't there to take their coats? Uh-oh. You know, what if the flowers were wrong? And hanging over your head there is once you've won that award, everybody's coming in the door going, so this is the best restaurant in New Zealand. Over. And ready yeah. to go, well, it ain't, it ain't all that if it's not. So yeah. that does change the game, doesn't it? Yeah. we. I got a, I got a letter from someone saying, I came to you, the best restaurant in the country, to a, to a fish restaurant, best restaurant in the country, and I was appalled that I um, wasn't a given fish cutlery with which to eat my fish. Well, who the fuck uses fish cutlery these days, right? Anyway, <laughs> next day I'm on Trade Me buying old wedding gifts that have never been opened of ivory handled fish cutlery. Yeah. You know, and, and going right and and, make, and going and it was in the it was in the cutlery drawer all these ivory handled sets of fish knives and fish forks. Going, we we'll use it. Now that you're not in a restaurant situation, I can ask you this question mm. um, because I struggle with it all the time and I want the awards to evolve and I still feel that they have a, a relevance and they set a benchmark for the industry and they have a, you know, so they have a value. But what do you think about that? Because there is two sides to it, isn't it? There's the, the fantastic thing of being recognised and being celebrated and it also makes your job harder, as you've just said. I think they're essential, right? And I think there's, there's there's one angle here, which is the general public, right, which, you know, and, and their take on their awards or whatever. But I think it's so crucial for the industry, right, because I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the food has got to the level it has these days in this country because of those awards, right, because it does, as you're right, right, it sets a benchmark for other restaurants to aspire to or to go, what's that about? What do I need to do to be in that category? Because it's competitive, right? We're all... You know, while we're all in it together as, 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 and we're all collegial, we all like to think we're actually a better restaurant than the one next door down the road. So I think that's what's driven people on to make food and the dining experience better and better to the world-class level it is now in this country as a byproduct of those cuisine awards. You know, it's been the go-to for like, well, what do I have to do? Like, to, you know, to, to, to get there, what does it take? Because otherwise you're working blind. You've got, no, you've got nothing to set yourself against other than, you know, your, your, your own limitations or your own aspirations. Yeah. But if you see something else that someone's doing, you go, oh, I, that's, you know, I get it, right? We need to do that too. It could be, a, you know, a number, a number of little things that, you know, that, that, that restaurants take on from it. But, it. but it encourages operators to be better, 
And also because they want that for their staff as well. They go, we work really hard to do what, we, what we're doing. The reward is a hat or a, you know, or, a, or a mention or a category or whatever it might be is a recognition for the hard work that that crew put in to make that dining experience happen every night of the week or every night that they, that they are open. Right? And for the general public, they benefit out of it because the food and, the food and dining experience in this country has become so much greater than, than what it was. Yeah. And also, you know, they've got a reference point when they're going to arrive. And I, and I do it myself when I'm traveling and I, you know, I, I go to Christchurch or wherever it might be, and I pull up online the Cuisine Awards. I go, right, who, where, where to go to in Dunedin? I, I mean, I, I don't look at TripAdvisor. Mm. I look at Cuisine Awards. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's where right? they grew out of in the first place. The yeah. ultimate thing was so that, that, that our audience had a trusted source and knew yeah. that we'd eaten our way through all of these places and that's they right. wouldn't be in there unless they were good. But I do yeah. think that that benchmark thing for the industry is really, really important yeah. as well. And there's been talk you know, lately, and, and, and obviously we're not doing the awards this year because it's not the time while the, the hospitality industry is in recovery and, and we don't even know what the industry is going to look like on the other side of Christmas. So so yeah. it's not the time to be doing them now. However, we will bring them back in a new form for 21. And I've got people at the moment sort of suggesting, well, it's it's wrong, you shouldn't be giving scores. They're, I don't see how you can do something like that without a score yeah, because without a score there's yeah. no... Benchmark. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what missing out that year, that next year, that was like, you know, I said, if anything, we're a better restaurant. Well, clearly we weren't. You know, it's like, okay, well, what, have we, what have we done wrong here? Like, what's changed? What did we change that we that was the work for us last time that isn't working for us now? Did you work so, it you know, out? Yeah, we worked it out. The next year we won Best Specialist Restaurant. Mm. And, uh, and, and in a way, winning Best Specialist Restaurant was better for me than winning Restaurant of the Year. Because it, made, you know, it seemed to be the best seafood restaurant in the country. Well, specialist restaurant is actually, it's such a different thing because best restaurant yeah. obviously is what everybody aspires to, but specialist restaurants means that you're doing something really focused really, yeah. really well. That's right. And, and, and that, that was the first year they brought that category in. And I was trying going, best specialist. In fact, when they called my name, I said I was a bit pissed actually when I picked up the award because <laughs> I didn't expect to win anything after the previous year. So I was standing there and someone said, that's you. I went, what? That's, that's you that's won. Went, oh my god! Too drunk for a speech. Got up there, made some rambling thanks to a bunch of people, and staggered off going. And then it was the next one. I'm like, this specialist, that's cool. Like, restaurant of the year validated everything that I'd worked hard for all those years. I was like, I just made it. Like, we made it to number one. All the pain, all the suffering, all the sacrifices—they've all been worth it. It was hugely emotional winning restaurant of the year. Best specialist was we're the best seafood restaurant in the country. That you know that means we, as you say, we're so tightly focused. On that, you know, we're focusing on that one area. It's a real we've recognition. Become, we've become the best at it. Yeah. And that, yeah. And, and, that, and that was, I think we were my best fine dining as well or something like that. But, um, yeah, it was great. When was the finish line for the Yacht Club? Uh, my landlords wouldn't renew my lease. Right. You know, it was, and I, I'd done a couple of review re renewals. And every year I basically met with a new landlord because the club was run by committees. So every year I'd have to explain how the whole thing worked. This particular year, uh, I had a committee that was just there wasn't there wasn't anybody on that committee that was involved in business, and they wanted to review the process. They wanted to review. They wanted to go back to the members, and I was like, no, which I was all completely fine with. I'd noticed that the fine dining was was changing, right? And, and Bosley's needed to change as well. I, mean, I had this huge bar, which 13 years previously was fantastic, but now no one was standing at the bar. You know, no one was coming for lunch like they used to. 
and putting away six pints of Heineken before they sat down. You know, that the business lunch had gone. The, yeah. the business lunch had gone, right? So it was like, so, and the bar was now dead space, costing me money. And my rent had gone from $42,000 a year to $125,000 a year. And I still sat the same number of people, right? So it was really hard. So I didn't need dead space. I needed to maximize the space that we had. But it was going to cost 150 grand to do with only 18 months left on the lease. So I said, like, I want to make these changes. And I presented this proposal to them. I said, this is what I want to do with the restaurant going forward. And then the next thing I see, um, the Yacht Club have called for um, um, proposals publicly, you know, offers using my document, saying this is oh, what we But they changed And I went to them and said, hey, I said, that's mine. They said, oh, we changed a couple of sentences, but what you're saying is actually kind of where we want the club to be going. I'm like, yeah, and that would be me that does it. You've had over a million dollars a year in rent from me. I'm a pretty good tenant. In fact, you owe me money and can't pay it, not the other way around here. My rent's current, you owe me. So we ended up in this sort of real battle. My lease was running out in March 31. And it got to late Jan, early February, and my lawyer and my accountant said, like, what's happening? And I said, I don't know. They're not answering any of my questions. We, we couldn't take bookings beyond March. Right? I had weddings booked, and we couldn't sell gift vouchers, you know, it was because I didn't know if I was going to be there or not. So it was really hampering the business. And they said, well, you need to find out what's going on. So I rang, and I said, yes or no? Are you renewing my lease or not? And they came back and said no. So that was on a Friday, and I rang my uh, so I rang my lawyer and my accountant, who are good friends, very good friends of mine. We've been together for years. And uh, one of them said, uh, well, come April, how will you pay March's bills? And we'd also just had the best Christmas we'd ever had, so big tax was due. And uh, I said, I don't know. I said, I really don't know. I'll have to figure that one out. And they said, well, you can't. You're not allowed to do that. So that's knowingly trading one and solve them, and you'll go to jail, which is pretty scary because I'd already been working in the prisons by that stage. <laughs> and uh, so we, I had a catering job on in Hawke's Bay and I spent the whole weekend thinking about what, I, what it was I was going to do that I knew that on Monday I was about to close the doors of my restaurant and on Monday morning a liquidator came down from Auckland and uh, he looked at the whole situation he said yeah that's it I said he said sign this bit of paper which authorises us to take over and I said okay what happens so I signed it and I said what happens now and he said nothing you're done I take over from here he said call your staff and let's get them in and he said, and we'll tell Oh, Boz, Boz the, the, the rug right from, out from underneath you. You must have been absolutely devastated. I wanted to, I wanted to, I, I, there wasn't a rock close enough like I could crawl under and die. You know, I was just, yeah. I couldn't even get the words out to tell us. So all the staff came and they thought we'd won an award. So I said, I need you all to come in. I've got something to tell you all. They all tripped in going, what's exciting? What's well? What's going on? They had no what's idea. No idea. Oh. And I just said, as of 9.30 this morning, we no longer exist. And I couldn't get the words out. I just, I was, I was just heartbroken. And um, tried to thank them all. And in the end, the liquidator took over. And he said, "What Martin's trying to tell you is the following." And they all sort of stood there, completely stunned. And then he said, um, "He said, and I'm real, unfortunately, he said, I need you all to collect your stuff." And he said, "You have to be off the premises in the next thirty minutes." Oh my! And God. I was like, "Fucking hell!" It just couldn't get any worse. Mm. And then while they were all still there, and they're crying, and they're hugging each other and collecting their belongings and pieces and walking around with stunned mullets going, what the fuck is happening here? And obviously I had to go and get the manager of the yacht club, and he, I said, you know, come downstairs, got some news for you. And he came down, and he was like, oh, what's going on, what's going on? And when the liquidator told him what was happening, he started laughing. And I wanted to fucking kill him. I, wanted to, I just wanted to go, you prick. He thought, so I said, do you think this is funny? I said, do you, really, I said, do you think this is amusing? Look around you, man. Our lives. I said, I said, look what you've done. I said, I hope you're happy with yourself. 
Anyway, turned out he hadn't been telling the committee any of what would have been going on. Because, of course, the next thing is the committee start to hear about it. And they're on the phone going, what's going on? I said, well, your manager, da la la told me you're not renewing the lease. And they, said, they were like, those were never our instructions to him. And I said, well, that's what's happened, and that's what he said. So he lost his job. And the place sat vacant for the next 12 months with no tenant. Oh, gosh. You know, no, 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 no one went in there, you know. And after fact, all of that. After, you know, so after all of that, no one went in there and sat vacant all that time. They couldn't, get, they couldn't get a tenant in there. They thought it was going to be so easy. Oh, we'll just replace you. And it just didn't happen. And it was because the rent was paid up. I actually had two weeks to get all our stuff out and the stuff that the liquidators didn't want to sell. Um, they said, you, can, you know, you can take all this. And, you know, I rang people like Kai Bosch and said, come collect all the food. You know, they, they came along and picked all that up. And it was just going through the, I was just going through the motions. It was just, I didn't know what to do. You know, and I was just, every day I'd go down there and I'd pick away at something and I'd sit there and stare at the sea and, of course, he was knocking on the back door, wanting, you know, wanting a comment and wanting a conversation. I just wasn't into it. And, you know, all of a sudden I was home in the evenings and um, life became really, really quiet. But, you know, Rachel and I still had the city market going. So I closed the doors and I said, as on the Tuesday, it was all in the front page of the papers on the news and all that sort of stuff that we, what had happened. But that Sunday we had to get the market going. It was a separate business and I had to be there. What, what was the city market? Oh, Rachel and I started the city market in Wellington, which was, you know, ground, again, a sort of groundbreaking market for local producers and suppliers that happened every, right. happened every Sunday inside. There, there was the outside harborside market, which was, was, was no good. And then we saw, well, what was it? It was, it was okay, but it was just lots of veggie sellers. But we set up the city market to showcase Wellington's producers. You know, Nalini was in there with her oils going, you know, what have you, and um, the French baker was there with his breads. So it was the best of the best, really, that we'd kind of hand-selected and offered these people spaces in the market. We had 32 storeholders. It went from 8 till 12 every Sunday. That was a, it was huge. We had two and a half, three thousand people every Sunday had come through. It became a real community, a place where people would meet every Sunday morning, families, kids, and you'd see people in a different environment than you did during the week. So I'd be down there in jeans and a T-shirt selling. And you'd have a different sort of conversation with your corporate client with his family than you did in the restaurant during the week. So there was a sort of wonderful informality about it, and it was it was brilliant. But anyway, but that had to keep going. So Sunday morning, up at 5 o'clock, down, down at the market, getting set up. And, it was probably and, a good thing that it had to keep going, though, huh? It meant, it meant I had to put my feet on the floor in the morning and get out of bed mm. and do something, mm. rather than like lying in bed and wallowing in self-pity and not wanting to face the world or face people. And... Um, and I started selling, I was, I was selling my own sauces back then, the, the, the Marty sauce and other things. And I wondered how I was going to, you know, how do you demonstrate a sauce? So I started making bacon and egg sandwiches and using the sauce and the bacon and egg sandwiches. They became the, my road to salvation in a way, because every Sunday, because I, suddenly I had no income. Like, I mean, with the restaurant gone, I had nothing. Nothing was happening yeah. anymore. I, I still I sort of had rent to pay and all those things. And also people were like beating down the door looking for money. You know, so so I got down to Sunday, set up a little station, got out the bacon, got out the eggs, and you know, and people came up and I, you know, I take one hundred and fifty dollars worth of ingredients on a Sunday morning and turn it into a thousand dollars worth of bacon and egg sandwiches. I think, why was I not doing this sooner? <laughs> this is what it's taken. But it put me back in front of people, and and I had people going, it's amazing that you're here. Like you know, it's I don't know how you got the courage to do it. Well, I just simply had no choice. You got to keep going. You got to keep going, and. And and it was probably and that was probably better for my mental health than wallowing because I, suddenly I was forced to reinvent myself. What are you doing now? People are going, what are you doing now? Well, I've got you know, are you doing any catering? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm doing a bit of catering. Well, I've got this thing happening. 
So work started coming up, and people were really generous. They were, you know, consulting work started coming. Look, I've got a restaurant that, you know, would you talk to my chef? I'll pay you whatever to do so. So a new life kind of spawned itself out of that that I'm not sure would have happened had I not had that, you know, that market. And also Rachel going, you're coming. You're going to be there on Sunday. And the following week, she said, what are you doing about work? And I said, oh, I think I'll just work from home, you know. And she said, no, no, you're back at the office because we her and I shared an office. Mm. And uh, she, you know, I said, "Oh well." So she, you know, she said, "No." She went down. She went to uh, Harvey Norman, saying, "Bought a work desk." Came back while I was standing there, still full of self pity. She assembled this desk, which to this day still feels like it's going to fall over because I'm sure <laughs> she left out a couple of screws. And, God bless uh, her. God bless her. She said, "That's where you're going to work." So I had good people around me that that that, that really helped me get through. Um, and yeah, and uh, and I carved out a new life. Where did the alliance and connection to Yellow Brick Road come in? Well, so well, Rachel and I, we shared an office for a long time. We'd done, we'd done the city market and we'd done Pigfish and we'd done the Oyster Saloon together. And so we just, you know, we had this shared passion for, you know, the food culture here. We talk, And I'd watched her build Yellow Brick Road up from those early years of, like, you know, hardly any local customers mm. to, you know, to what it was when she was running it. And I'd just come off contract. I'd been working for consulting to Mojo for two years post-restaurant, Mojo Coffee. And that had just finished, and I was wondering what to do next when she got the approach to sell Yellow Bit Road to Cornell to become the chief executive. And we were talking about it one day. She said, I really want to do this, but I don't know who's going to run Yellow Bit Road or what I do with it. And I just said, well, I'll do it. And she's like, what? And really? I said, yeah. I said, well, you know, if I have me. I said, but, you know, I've listened to you every day for the last seven years and, you know, being with you, you know, when you've been selling to fish, fish to me and others, I said, so, you know, I know restaurants, I know kitchens, and I know, I know seafood. So you know the business inside I know, out, really. I know really. the business. Yeah. And I, said, and I said, all I've got to figure out is the sales part, and that can't be that hard. Well, actually, it is hard. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a natural salesman at all, but um, but I could talk. And she said, great. So she said, okay, fine. We drew up the contract. She sold. I became employed by Corner to run Yellow Bit Road, and that was five years ago. Wow. And loved it, and I love it. And it's been, it's been great because one of the things I really missed in that Period while I've been consulting to Mojo, although I was going to kitchens, I was going to like cabinet type cabinet food kitchen, and I really missed the contact with cooks and kitchens and restaurants, you know. And suddenly I had that back in my life. That's interesting because I'm a firm believer too in that you know if you drive your path whichever way you go, some of us are lucky enough to end up in a space where all of the things that you haven't realised that you've been storing away all suddenly come into play and you can use them. Absolutely. You know, and you would never have set out to go in any of those directions, but all of a sudden you get into this gig where all of that knowledge that you didn't know you had, suddenly you've got it and and it works. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It's just, well, I lost the restaurant, I was about to turn 50, and I was like, oh, my God, fuck, 50, losing everything, how am I going to do this? Well, I'm 55 now, and I'm like, I'm just having the best time, you know. And, it's, and because, as you say, you're like all those things that you picked up along the way, it feels like maybe it took a long time to accumulate that knowledge, you know. And, and then having been through the liquidation and the loss of the business, which was really public, you know, other chefs know that, and they're like, "Can you talk us through it? Like, what's it like?" And you know, like, "What? I think I might be close. What? Can you come and talk to me?" I've done a lot of that, of like just going sit, sitting with chefs and, or husband and wife teams and going, tell me what's going on, be really honest here. Getting out an envelope and going, let's just work this out in the back of an envelope. For mm. 
that must be great for them because sometimes when you're really in it, as you know, it's really hard you can't to be it. realistic. Yeah. 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 And restaurants are, you know, they are a hugely emotional business. You know, you're mm. connected to the business emotionally, right? Because of what you do is so deeply personal. You know, you're putting, you know, your food on the plate and there's a really intimate relationship we have with our diners, right? I mean, there's, you know, I'm cooking something that you're going to put in your mouth and take into your body. There's a huge degree of trust there with that, right? So it's a really intimate relationship we have, you know. And then we, you know, and our floor staff are looking after you at close quarters to make sure you have a good time. They're inquiring as to how your evening's going. You know, we ge- we're genuinely concerned for your welfare the whole way through. So, you know, we we did, and that's why we take negative reviews so badly because it's like you know it's an affront to everything we, we think we've been doing. But you can learn from those. So when you get to that point where you think you're going to lose it all. You just can't see it, and it is like there's a huge amount of grief. I mean, especially like with my place, like it, it had my name on the door. It wasn't just the loss of the business; it was a loss of identity. You know, the restaurant was me, and I was the restaurant. Suddenly, one of us was gone. Who was I? What was I? I had what was I without a restaurant? I didn't have a restaurant anymore. When people say, well, "What do you do?" I didn't know how to answer that question. Or, you know, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> What happened then, though? So you found yourself back into into Yellow Brick Road, and then all of a sudden, um, a discovery of a, a love for the Wire rapper. Yeah, well, again, circumstance kind of drove me over there, and then I couldn't, you know, I, I sort of got myself back on my feet again and was looking to buy a house. Was um, and I couldn't afford to buy in Wellington, you know, because I'm single, so you know, on a single income, um, the banks wouldn't lend while I could borrow, you know, like eight hundred thousand. They weren't going to lend it to me because I was on a single income. So there's, there was just nothing in the price bracket that I was looking at. Uh, and then I saw this little place in the Wairapa just in the, in, the, in the paper, and it was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that, Greytown. And uh, in nine years of living in Mount Cook, I never met my neighbours once. Within a couple of days of being in Greytown, I'd met, like, everybody. And they're all bringing me produce. <laughs> you know, welcome to the neighbourhood. Here's some beans for growing. We've got a section down the road. Just go and help yourself. I'm just up at the top <laughs> pub. Do you want some, do you want some pheasant? Yeah. I'll, I'll drop them by my way home. What? So no more restaurants, Boz? I don't think so. No, I just, you know, I mean, I, so there's so many, there's so many aspects of them that I miss, than equally. And I think now, Kelly, I mean, the, the chefs I'm talking to, restaurateurs I'm talking to on a daily basis, they're doing it tough. It's hard, and it was, you know, it was hard when I got out, and I think it's even harder now. And that's not just because of COVID. I think, you know, landlords, you know, that that whole model's got to, has got to fundamentally change. It's a business model that is. It's always been slightly flawed anyway. It's broken. Yeah. You know, but now it's completely smashed. It's broken. Um, restaurant, you know, landlords really need to sharpen up how they're going to work with restaurants rather than just be a landlord-tenant relationship. You know, compliance costs are huge. And people don't, you know, and no one's really charging what they should be for the price of a meal. And if they did, no one would go there. That's the question, isn't it? Because you go back to when you opened your restaurant and you were virtually paying people 50, 60 bucks yeah. to come in to have a, have a meal with you. It can't continue like that. No. And you say that people won't pay, but if we want to have those special experiences, they're going to have to. They're going to have to, yeah. In your beautiful book, which is such a beautiful book. Thank you. You talk to how much you loved sitting in the Yacht Club restaurant and looking down the length of the room at the polished glassware and the crisp yeah. linens and, and at the sculptural pieces, um, you know, Paul Dibble and Jeff Thompson and Louise Purvis and the butterflies yeah. that you experienced every yeah. single service as your guests would start to arrive. Yeah. And it almost sounded like a love affair, Boz. Oh, totally. It was, I was in love with my restaurant. And I think that 
that is why we'll always go to restaurants. That 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 passion, that yeah. person behind it. You can't get that at home. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. You're absolutely right. It was. I was in love with my restaurant. You know, it was. It was absolutely. It was a love affair. But yeah. that's what shows through, and it's that as a guest when you come in the door, that thing that you're going to mm. experience. It's all of those things, and I, I think that that will always be there. But but I think people are going to have to pay more for it. Yeah, they will. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think that they have to understand that. I think you know. Hopefully, we'll get to that point. But also, you know, you know, fifty-five. So you know, my knees don't take a long day in the kitchen anymore, Kelly. You know, I, I, I leave a kitchen now after doing a catering job or whatever. And, I'm broken for the next three days. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's just, it's tough on you the body, you know. You can't slog those big stock pots around forever, can you? No, shit, no. I mean, as it is, we were like you know, a couple of years ago, I was in the kitchen and I something fell on the floor and I just kicked it across the apprentice and said, pick that up. <laughs> he said, well, I said, pick it up. Put that in the bin for me. He went, oh, okay. <laughs> Clearly thinking, why don't you pick it up yourself? And the point was, the, the fact was, I couldn't actually bend down to pick it up. I was going to put my back out. And it was just like... <laughs> And I didn't want anybody to see that. That I had to, you know, go down slowly on hands and knees to pick this thing up, and then pull myself up using the edge of the bench to get back up. I'm like, you know, <laughs> so you not know, a good look. Not a good, not yeah, not a great look. Cuisine bites. A great privilege to have Martin share his thoughts with us like that, huh? So many good takeaways in there for you from a chef and restaurateur who's played a crucial role in the New Zealand food story. Along with being chief fish guru at Yellow Brick Road, Martin still consults and now writes a regular column for Cuisine, and we're really proud of that. You can find all of his articles at cuisine.co.nz or you can find him on Twitter at Martin Bosley's or Instagram at martinbosley1. You can find Cuisine on social at Cuisine Magazine. And if you want to catch up with me, just search Kelly Brett. Make sure you spell Kelly with an I. And that's it for this episode of Cuisine Bites. I look forward to meeting you back here soon. I don't think I've ever said it to you, but I, I need you to know how absolutely amazed I was when you agreed to take on a column for me in Cuisine, and I, I kind of pinch myself every time I look at those pages, Martin, because I, I love them very much. Oh, Kelly, that's really... Oh, my, my, my mum cried a little bit on that one. It was... Um, obviously, it's a two-way street. I was absolutely ecstatic when you said yes. I was thrilled, because it was been... I'd always wanted to write for Cuisine, and you made it happen. And uh, and I know, I know it can be a bit shit with deadlines, but I... Um, yeah, you can be really shit with deadlines, actually. I was going to bring that only, up. It's only because I, I want to get it right. It's, it's an absolute privilege and a joy writing for cuisine. It's just terrific. Right, well, I think we'll finish this Mutual okay. Admiration Society right here. And I can go and do my fish line. <laughs>